1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. So we are finishing up the first book of this series. We're, gonna, we're doing a series called Encourage One Another here from 1 and 2 Th- Thessalonians. And this is the close of 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to find 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28, we're going to be reading that in a second here. And we should also have some Bibles in the seat backs if you didn't bring yours, so you could grab that in front of you. But yeah, this will be Paul's final like closing statements um, and some exhortations and encouragements for the young church in Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. So as we've been going through this sermon series, you might remember that this is a church that was started by Paul and Uh, Paul's companions as they were preaching in the city of Thessalonica. And we know by reading Acts 17 that shortly after Paul started this church, he was run out of town by um, some riots, actually, that were going on there, which were started because of Paul's teachings. (laughs) And so Paul sent Timothy back after a while to go see how this church was doing. And the report was encouraging, and so this is Paul sending a letter back to this church, just encouraging them, and he's, he's just excited to see how the church has taken off in, um, in Thessalonica. So, what we're going to be looking at today is just these last few verses of Paul wrapping up the letter, and he's going to give a whole string of, like, do's and don'ts, um, which... Some of it is corrective, but most of it is just final encouragements for this church. And so it's an interesting passage to preach because there isn't really a main point. It's just um, just a whole smattering of different uh, instructions. And so we'll be seeing that these instructions are all given to and directed towards the whole congregation. Um, and they can easily be translated into our day, into our context here, and we can glean a lot from those instructions as a whole. So, so let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28 together. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
So the very first section that we'll be looking at today while we wrap this book up is the two verses uh, 12 and 13 where the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church to esteem and honor those who are over them, those who are their church leaders, pastors, elders. And just remember, this is a brand new church. So this is a gospel community that was started quickly. And then because of the riots, uh, Paul and those with him had to flee away and move on after just a few weeks of teaching and, and setting this church up. So they didn't have much time to disciple anyone. But according to this passage, they had to have had, to have had enough time just to appoint uh, leaders. And so I think what we're seeing here it can have some parallels to what we see uh, today based on the counsel that Paul was giving them. Uh, some of the Thessalonians might have just kind of bristled at this idea of, of being under the leadership of the elders and pastors. And I can just imagine some of them calling for Paul or just like wishing Paul was back with them. And I think this can easily happen to us today when we hear some like dynamic preachers or we have some of these maybe celebrity uh, preachers that you, you could see on YouTube or on the radio or something like that. And we can just hear them and be like, oh, I wish we were, I wish like we we're, I wish we had someone like that. Like, or on, um, like they have it all together, but that's really, obviously that's not the case anywhere. Nobody has it all together, but, um, but yeah, Paul's just encouraging them here to esteem their own leaders highly and to respect the work that these local elders do for their church. And I think it's important for us in our day, in our churches, to submit to the local leadership of our churches the ones who know us personally and can be there for us. We shouldn't be looking to YouTube or podcasts or radio programs. Not that that's bad. I think that has a place for sure. And I enjoy listening to different um, other teachers and preachers and stuff, but, but it's so important just to be a part of a local community. And so while we're on this topic of leadership, I want to take a bit of time and explain explain what healthy biblical leadership looks like for a church. I think most of us have a pretty good understanding of healthy gospel leadership if we've hung around this church a lot, but we also have a whole range of church and world experience uh, among us here. And so I just want to spend a little time addressing what the Bible has to say about it, because it does have a lot um, to say. So, Sometimes we can bristle, again, at just at the thought of leaders being over us. That, that can be kind of an, an American thing, actually. <laughs> I find myself uh, doing that as well. But but some ways, this is for good reason. Like, we all have examples. We've seen examples of bad leadership um, that we can think of, that we can point to. Whether that's corrupt p- political leaders or maybe bad parents or untruthful business executives or even unfaithful church leaders. Like we all to some extent have experienced this, if not firsthand, then secondhand for sure. But we need to recognize that we also, we live in a fallen world and 
the desires and the temptations of the world and of the devil are real and affect how people lead. But as Christians, we're part of the kingdom of God. And in God's graciousness, he has ordered uh, creation and the universe in a way that we have leaders, that we have uh, order. We actually have order. Like, that's part of um, God's good design. And in the church in particular, God has ordained certain men to lead his church. And we usually call them pastors and elders. Uh, and God has not left us in the dark as to qualifications for elders and pastors. He's clearly defined this for us. And I want us to just look quickly at a passage in First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which kind of lays out what a biblical church leader should look like. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 5, says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so this is the way God would have pastors and elders lead, by leading willingly and with humility by serving, not doing it for their own personal gain, but leading eagerly for the sake of the gospel and not domineering. So when, you're, when all you're focused on as a leader is gaining more power and more control, that, that is a recipe for disaster. That is, that's domineering leadership where it's just a bulldozer or a wrecking ball destroying everything in its path, including the very people who you're trying to lead. So, so that's big thing that, that we, need to, we need to guard against. And, and humility is such a key there. So we're not to thirst for power, but as a servant to those under their care. So this is a vastly different paradigm than uh, what the world thinks of for leadership. It's that of servanthood and serving each other and humility. So back to our passage in 1 Thessalonians. We see that Paul encourages the congregation. So all, actually, everything that we're talking about today, I think, is directed towards everyone as a whole, the congregation of the Thessalonians. Um, so he, he encourages the congregation to respect their pastors and elders their leaders. And it's kind of nice because I'm not officially a pastor here <laughs> and, and I get to preach on this uh, passage today. I'm not, a, I'm not a pastor or an elder, but um, I think it helps that I can say these things and in a way where it doesn't sound like, all right, y'all need to respect me. <laughs> um, 
And I'm sure that's not what Pastor Tom or Pastor Chris would say or any of the elders, <laughs> of course not. But it's kind of nice to have this passage to preach on because it's like an all of us kind of a thing. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's, he's addressing this to everyone. And so looking at verse 12, we see that we are to respect those who are over us, to respect those who are shepherding and teaching us. And for us here, that would be Pastor Tom, Pastor Chris, and the elders, Ray, Dwayne, and Sam. And let me just say, these guys are easy to respect, and I appreciate them. I, I know you all do too. And, but this is also where we can just where we can easily bristle. Like we can have these attitudes of like, who are they to be over us? <laughs> but just keep in mind, like God, God is the one who sets up authorities. And when he sets up leaders and when he ordains these things, like it's for our good. Like he, he knows what's best for us. And even more importantly, Jesus is the chief shepherd. And so even, even, church leaders and pastors look to Jesus and submit themselves to Jesus. And so Jesus being the head of the church, and then he appoints elders to be over each of the churches, and, he, and these elders are to shepherd their individual local gospel community. And so the first thing Paul says about leaders is that they are over us, over the flock as shepherds, and the second thing is that they admonish us. And later in the sermon, we'll talk about what it looks like for us to admonish each other. But here, Paul is talking about leaders admonishing those that they are over. And the reason this is important, I think, is that the pastors and the elders, if they are operating under the lordship of Christ, they have the responsibility of caring for us and teaching us and correcting us when we're living contrary to the word of God. So they are the ones keeping watch over our souls. There's a level of responsibility that they have before God. And they're held accountable to it. They'll answer to God for the way they lead, whether it's for good or for evil. And so our leaders are over us and they are to admonish us when we're unfaithful to God's word. And thirdly, they work hard. You might think to yourself, like, what do pastors do all day? <laughs> Some people think pastoring is a cushy job and might ask, like, all right, so do you, do you really only work, like, one day a week? <laughs> I've heard that before. That's not the case at all. There's, there's mental and there's emotional labor and, and there's visiting the sick in the hospital or ministering to families whose loved ones are dying or praying for and counseling those under their care. There's operational or administrative functions and, and there's all kinds of work that goes into studying God's word and preparing a sermon or a teaching lesson. And I know firsthand now that I've had opportunities um, every once in a while here to preach a sermon. It's, I know it's not a walk in the park and my fiance Janae over here can tell, <laughs> she could tell you that as well. But there's yeah, so there's strategizing as well. There's seeking God's direction for the church and church planting. There's all, there's all kinds of things that uh, go into leading and pastoring a church. But, but I've been here at Springbrook, and I have the opportunity as part of uh, 
I'm part I'm part time here as a church church planting resident, and so it's been really, really what I've been able to see. Um, one of the coolest things is just to be like a fly on the wall during the elder meetings here and to see how much they care for you all here. And often it's like half, half the amount of the meeting is just spent in prayer. And um, that's just been such a cool thing to see. So you can just see the humility and the gospel labor that goes into leading this church. So that's really encouraging to me. And yeah, I think that's just when I read this passage, that's what it reminds me of. But Paul has been writing to the congregation and encouraging them here to respect their leaders who labor over them. And then as we move on in verses 14 through 18, he's going to be teaching us how we can live in gospel community. And it's kind of like a rapid fire, like bullet points of what gospel living looks like as a community. And so first off, Paul encourages us in verse 14 to admonish each other, to admonish the idol. And think of this as in the context of a discipleship relationship or a friendship uh, within the church here. And we are all called to admonish the idol and the idol could mean it could it could definitely mean just the lazy like that's kind of what I think of when I uh, when I first hear that word but I don't think it's necessarily talking about those who are physically lazy and avoiding work although the Bible does address that in different areas but more like the spiritually idle who are making unhealthy decisions with with their life or this could just look like a disorderly, like all over the place, spiritual life. Or maybe those who've been tempted and have turned their back on God and just run after things like uh, like money or sex or power rather than living for Jesus. These are just the kind of things that we are all called to admonish each other in, like, like um, just as in the relationship gospel relationships, in gospel community. We're called to call each other back to repentance and to the word of God. And then next we are to encourage the faint-hearted, the crushed in spirit. And I'm sure we've all been in situations where we are just crushed under the weight of circumstances, under the weight of life, right? Like life, life happens. <laughs> and we've all been there. This world is hard. There are natural disasters, there are relational difficulties, there are just crises that hit us that we can't plan for. And a gospel community looks like caring for each other in those times and encouraging each other when hard times come and pointing each other to the Father and just being there for each other. And so much of this book, as we've seen over the last few weeks, is about encouraging one another. Like, that's the title of this sermon series, Encourage One Another. And so this is said over and over throughout this book, and it's underlined here once more before the end of the letter. And then we're called, still in verse 14, we're called to help the weak. And this could be those with 
uh, crippling anxiety. Remember last week, Paul was addressing those who were anxious about death and about the return of Christ. And that's a possibility here, or it could also just be the physically weak and those of us who are disabled physically or mentally. And this could be as practical as just meeting basic needs of each other. In Acts, the church generously gave towards those who had any need and everyone was cared for. And this is what gospel community looks like. And I know we've, we've done this well also. I was encouraged just earlier this summer just with the outpouring of generosity. Um, I think I, I brought up um, foster care, our foster families, and just the amount of the amount of generosity that I saw from all of you and that we were able to give towards our foster families was amazing. So that's just, that's a way of helping the weak. And, and this is what gospel community looks like. And then we do all of this. We do all of this with patience. And this is so important. I want you to like highlight this part or like underline it or something just to remember all of this we do with patience. I don't know if you all remember, but um, Pastor Tom has mentioned a couple times just this idea of like ingredients for a healthy gospel community. And it was borrowed from Pastor Ray Ortland. And he talks about the gospel plus safety plus time as ingredients for a healthy gospel community. So let's be patient with one another. Let's give each other time. And the work of the gospel in our lives is a lifetime work, and it takes the safety of a community, and it takes patience for God's work to grow in us. It's slow growing like a seed. It's like a seed that you plant in the springtime, and it slowly grows over the summer until the harvest time. That's what sanctification looks like. That's what it looks like for us to grow in our faith. And none of us has made it. Like, none of us has truly made it yet, other than Jesus Christ himself. And so that's why we need to give each other patience and time for the work that Jesus does in our hearts. And so while this sanctification is working in our hearts, we're called to do good to all and to avoid repaying evil for evil. These are such like broad statements here. It's, it's kind of, it encompass, encompasses so much. But I'm just reminded of a couple different verses. One is when Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, 38 through 40. And he says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So we're called to avoid repaying evil for evil. And instead, we're to do good to each other. And not just those in our gospel community here, but to everyone, it says. And you might be familiar with the golden rule in Matthew seven twelve, where Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, 
do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So none of us would wish evil on ourselves, would we? (laughs) But we're to do good to each other. And the way we can do this, and the way that we know good from evil is by knowing Jesus. By knowing his word, by reading his word, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so in verses 16 through 18 now, as we keep on going here, we're going to see a continuation of kind of this fire hose of of do's and don'ts that Paul is giving the Thessalonians before closing the letter. But for these next few verses, I want to point something out that I thought was really good as I was studying this week. Verses 16 through 18 say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I was reading some commentary on these verses and it was really interesting to hear this perspective that I wouldn't have caught the first time reading through this. But what this commentator suggests is that these three exhortations to rejoice, to to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks. These three are directed to the church as a whole. It's kind of going along with what we've been talking about already. It's addressed to the Thessalonian church as a whole, rather than to like each individual. And it's that these three verbs, to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks, are talking about our corporate worship together, where we are to always be rejoicing. This can be in singing to each other, singing with each other, and and then always praying. And when we come together, that we're giving thanks in our prayers and our interactions. And I think giving as well would be an aspect of thanksgiving. That's kind of an overflow of thanksgiving. And so all of these things, when done consistently in worship, it will overflow into our lives individually. But these three things here in 1 Thessalonians I think is I think it's more addressed as a whole to us. So instead of instead of applying it to ourselves personally like like I need to make sure I'm praying constantly because that's what this verse is saying. Um instead we just recognize that this is being said in the context of a corporate worship gathering. And these are things that we should be doing as a congregation in worshiping rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. And I think this is a good way to look at, to think about these verses, and I think it fits this context. And it's, it's also just an example of how sometimes we can read things. Like, like when I first read that, I would have automatically just thought, oh, all right, I need to, I need to be praying constantly. I need to be uh, rejoicing constantly. But it's kind of an example of how we can read through the lens of our current cultural moment and just the individualism that we swim in um, day to day. It can just tint our glasses so that everything we read we assume is written for our own individual lives. But I think in a case like this passage and like most of these do's and don'ts we're seeing it's addressed uh, 
as a whole to the congregation. So that was just something I thought was really interesting. Um, all right, so now we are going to keep moving along to the next couple verses where Paul seems to zero in on one specific issue as he's closing out this letter. Uh, for the last few verses, it's just been a rapid fire, the do's and don'ts that Paul is laying out for the Thessalonian congregation. But Paul continues here in verses 19 through 22, and he touches on another problem that needs addressing in this young church. And that is that some people were quenching the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? The word quench is something, it just means to stifle or to extinguish something. And so this is the figurative idea of, of like, it's like putting out a fire that's burning. And I think there are many different ways that we can quench the Holy Spirit's work. But here Paul specifies in what way the Thessalonians were doing this, and that is by despising prophecies. And again, let's define our terms. When we see the word prophecy, what are we talking about? What is it talking about there? The Greek-English lexicon gives this definition. It says, the utterance of one who interprets divine will or purpose. So that's one definition. And I also like the definition given by the theologian Sam Storms, which is pretty similar, but it's maybe a little more specific. So he says prophecy is the speaking forth in merely human words, something the Holy Spirit has sovereignly and spontaneously revealed to a believer. So there can be a lot of misconceptions that we have about prophecy nowadays. And on one side of the issue, I think there are a lot of people in churches who think that prophecy and other miraculous gifts have ceased to exist after the canon of the scripture. So after scripture was completed, they would say that these gifts have ceased. And they reason that there's no more need for any kind of revelation once the Bible was complete. But I don't think there's much biblical evidence for that. I, wouldn't, I would argue that this kind of theology, it, it could even be a way that we've quenched the Holy Spirit um, in church history. I just don't see sound biblical reasoning for that. Um, but instead, the New Testament speaks about prophecy as fairly, not, not normal, I wouldn't say normal, but it, does, it has a lot to say about prophecy throughout Acts and a lot of the epistles. Treats it fairly normal, and, and you see here Paul is not frightened by it. He's just talking about it normally. Um, but he encourages, he encourages its use, but he calls the Thessalonians to not despise it, but instead to be discerning and to test everything. And that is really key to what is going on here in these verses. And then on the other side of the issue, we just have to recognize that some of us have had truly bad experiences with um, charismatic churches who abuse prophecy and other spiritual gifts. 
and who focus more on the gift while despising Jesus, while despising the gospel. And I truly understand the caution that we can have towards this topic. But I think often we can throw the baby out with the bathwater in this area. When we hear someone talking about prophecy or some of the more supernatural spiritual gifts like tongues or words of wisdom, I think that's why in these verses Paul emphasizes the need to test everything. That's so key here. So does this prophecy contradict the word of God? Or is it instead subject to and in agreement with the word of God? Does it cause confusion and chaos? We know God is a God of, of order, not of chaos. Does it puff up with pride or does it magnify Christ and build up the body of Christ? So we're taught here in First Thessalonians to test everything and to hold fast what is good and to abstain from every form of evil. All right, so we've made it to the last closing verses here where Paul sends his closing remarks to the Thessalonian church. And it's some pretty solid encouragement to close off the book. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So I love this closing benediction in verses 23 and 24 because it just wraps things up really nicely with a word of encouragement. And it, and it uses several of the themes that Paul's been talking about throughout this book. Like the coming of Jesus Christ and how we live our lives in light of this day. As well as just the peace that Jesus brings us through his death and resurrection. And this, his death and resurrection, this is where I want to land the plane. His closing words here are, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And this wraps it all up nicely, pointing us to the one and only reason that we can do any of these things we've been talking about today, whether that's helping the weak or having patience with each other or not quenching the Holy Spirit. All these things are doable only through the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ that he lavished on us. So our actions must flow straight out of the cross of Christ and his resurrection, which has given us life and which is our only hope for salvation. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Jesus, we just rejoice at what you have done for us and how you have rescued us out of the muck and the mire. And you've set our feet on the rock of salvation. We thank you for your word and just the opportunity we have each week to gather together and worship your name and to hear your word expounded on and proclaimed. And we thank you most of all for the salvation that you accomplished through your death and resurrection. 
And we want to remember this as we take communion here in a little bit. I just pray that you would bless this time and that you would encourage our hearts. And as we continue in worship, that our hearts would be set on you and you alone. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.